to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, continuing our study in Jesus' teaching about marriage and singleness. Matthew chapter 19, it's page 824 in the, in the Bible in the back of the pew in front of you if you need that. Page 824, Matthew 19, and we'll start in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, this is the Pharisees, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your word this morning. I pray that with all that we have going on in our minds and our hearts and all the, all the strange thoughts that this passage brings up, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us just single-minded focus on what Christ's message is for us. And Lord, by your grace, by your spirit working in me, would you help me to deliver that message to this church, your people? my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray that today we would have an understanding of Christ's call on our lives, whether we're married or single. And it would be like an understanding we haven't had before. Teach us new things from your word, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we begin, I'm just curious, how many of you have ever heard a live in-person sermon on the subject of singleness before. And I don't mean how many of you looked up a sermon on singleness and watched it on YouTube or looked one up on a podcast or saw it at a conference. I mean, in, in person, in church, in the pulpit, working the way through God's word. Heard a sermon on singleness. Just raise your hand. Okay, okay, that's about what I thought. Now, how about marriage? If you were here last week or the week before that, you heard a marriage. The, the Bible has a lot to say about marriage, doesn't it? We just spent two weeks on the subject. And marriage, as all of us know in Scripture, uh, it's one of those really big, bright, major themes that we see across the Bible. At the beginning of Scripture, the first humans were married to one another. At the end of the Bible, the church's relationship to Jesus is a marriage, is a wedding. The Bible is book ended by these two 
really spectacular weddings. Genesis 2, Adam and Eve. Revelation 19, Christ and the church. Those two weddings define the entire redemptive story. So marriage is really important in Scripture, and that's why you've heard sermons on marriage before. But singleness is often overlooked. Even though all of us here have been single at some point in our lives, and half of the married people here will be single again, and we'll all be single in eternity, singleness just isn't something that we really pay attention to. There isn't a a culture in the world that really has a place for singleness. And by that I mean a true, intentional, celibate singleness. Whether you're in traditional, communal cultures or in more westernized, individualized cultures, celibate singleness is not a virtue. It's more seen as a failure. Something went wrong. Think of the English words that we have to describe a single woman. Spinster, old maid. These aren't compliments. Something's gone wrong. Or or, or think of the way that we describe single men. We call them stags or bachelors, overgrown boys, afraid of commitment. Again, something's gone wrong. We don't really have a positive way of describing celibate singleness, do we? Even in our text this morning, in Matthew 19, Jesus has to use the word eunuch to describe singleness. And eunuch is a particularly loaded term. And it has less to do with a man's marital status. That's assumed he's unmarried, but he's unmarried because he's emasculated. Something is wrong with him. He is deficient. But what Jesus wants to show us this morning is that singles in Christ's kingdom are not second-class citizens. There's nothing wrong with them, nothing at all. In fact, something is very right with them. Men and women who are single have the distinct opportunity to be devoted to King Jesus in a way that no one else can. Lottie Moon is a perfect example of that. So in the church, singleness should hold a place of distinct honor. Now, now we got here to this part of our text because we've been dealing with marriage, right? We've seen that the last couple of weeks. The Pharisees tried to trick Jesus into contradicting Scripture. Jesus shows them the true biblical storyline and how God's view of marriage is much, much higher than the Pharisees had understood. God's view of marriage, as we saw, was was that it was created by him, was ordained by him to, to be a part of the creation order. It's a good thing. It was created to be permanent in life. And the disciples are hearing this, and and then they respond here in our text this morning in verse 10. They all grew up in that culture where there's a low view of marriage, a a, a culture where marriage was viewed as a means to an end. And upon finding out, hearing from Jesus, there's no righteous way out of marriage, 
They say in verse 10, well, if that's the case, Jesus, if, if such is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. What they're doing is they're, they're pointing out the absurdity of Jesus' statements. Jesus, you can't be serious. If a man has to stay married to his wife, regardless of how awful she is, then it would be better not to marry. And what goes unsaid is, and we all know how ridiculous it would be to remain unmarried. In, in logic, we call this reductio ad absurdum, reduced to the absurd. The, the disciples are telling Jesus, your argument, Jesus, cannot be true because if it were, it would lead to the absurd conclusion that it is better not to marry. And Jesus responds by saying in his own way, well, in the kingdom, for some, it is better not to marry. Look at verse 11. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. And by this saying, he means that saying. It's better not to marry. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. That's special revelation language that we've heard Jesus using throughout Matthew's gospel. To some who are in the kingdom, it will be revealed to them by God that it is better for them to be single. To those whom God gives this call, God will equip to live this out. So, so when God calls you, as he does all of us, live in holiness, Christian. He gives you the Holy Spirit who enables you to live in holiness. When God calls you to endure a trial, and there will be trials, he gives you his church to walk through that trial with you. He enables you to endure that trial. When God calls you to singleness, he gives you great contentment in Christ and resolve to serve his kingdom. And what we'll see is it's not true for everyone that singleness is better than marriage but only those to whom it is given, as Jesus says. Married people should stay married, and some single people should get married, but for some, it is better to remain single. The kingdom of heaven that is broken in the world, what Jesus is showing his disciples, this kingdom of heaven that is now here, that's in the world that you're part of, is so different from the world that for some, total devotion to this king is better than marriage. Better than marriage. In verse 12, Jesus gives his supporting argument. It's a one-verse supporting argument. Look at verse 12. And the, the, the first word in verse 12 is for, which is like because. That means what I've just said is true. Here's the reasons why. And here's the reasons. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So in other words, if you can hear what I'm saying and connect the dots, hear what I'm saying and connect the dots. Now eunuchs, in Jesus' example, are the category of people for whom it is better not to marry. And as we look at these, I want you to see this eunuch illustration is an analogy. It's an analogy to singleness. That's what Jesus is doing. He's not only talking about eunuchs or men who have been rendered sterile. 
It's an analogy to singleness, men and women who are committed to singleness. And there are three categories that Jesus gives us. He recognizes singleness isn't monolithic. Not everybody's in the same situation. So the 75-year-old widow is in a very different situation than the 22-year-old young man who's just graduated from college. Totally different circumstances, aren't they? And yet, they're both single, and it may be better for each one of them to remain that way. But he gives us three categories that I want, I want us to look at. First, Jesus mentions those who are biologically eunuchs, those who have been so from birth, as he says. In other words, something about the way that they are made makes it better for them not to marry. Now, there's a lot of different ways that we can understand this. One way that we're coming to a better understanding of this as Christians is seeing those brothers and sisters in Christ who, for whatever reason, have struggled against the attraction to people of the same sex. So whether they're really born that way, whether it has something to do with some environmental factor, I don't, I don't know, I don't claim to, to make an argument there, but the point is they're struggling against this. It's a fight for them. It's a battle for them. They know their desire is sinful because they're Christians and they're fighting against it. For some people in this category, and many of us know people that are, are in this way, God can bring them from where they are into a happy, healthy Christian marriage to people of the opposite sex, as God designed marriage to be. In other words, by the grace of God, they changed. But for some, for some, celibate singleness is better for them. By the grace of God, they are able to live a life of singleness. They take their difficult circumstances, they recognize the opportunity that they've been given to remain single, the calling that they have to remain single, and they do that. Uh, there's another category that Jesus gives us, though. The second category is those who are forced to be eunuchs. These are they're men who have been forcibly emasculated so that they would serve a worldly king. Now, this wasn't happening in, in Israel, but it happened when Israelites went to Babylon and when they were under the Medes and the Persians that we've been learning about in Daniel. Oftentimes, these men are servants or were servants to the king's concubines. They were safe around the king's harem. So we see eunuchs like this in Esther's story in the Old Testament. Esther has eunuchs who serve her. Those men aren't there by choice any more than Esther was. The analogy here, then, if we're drawing the line across Jesus' analogy, this, this would go to people who, to quote a 20th century Oakland theologian, they didn't choose the single life. The single life chose them. Singleness was forced upon them. That, that, that might be someone whose spouse has died. They're, they're widowed. It could be someone whose spouse has left them. So, In other words, circumstances outside of their control have brought upon them unexpected singleness. Some of these singles can remarry depending on their circumstances. Some of them, it's better not to remarry. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7 about this group. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, 
A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's freed to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So she's got to be another Christian. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. It's, she's happier, Paul is saying, if she remains single. Very similar to what Jesus is saying, is it? For her, it's better not to remarry. And then there's this third category that Jesus points to. Those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Again, he's not talking about the physical process of becoming a eunuch. No more than when Jesus talked about cutting off your hand to avoid sin or cutting out your eye if it's causing you to sin. What Jesus is getting at is a deliberate, intentional resolve of an individual, man or woman, to renounce marriage so that an individual can be of greater value to the kingdom, of greater benefit, can bear more fruit for the kingdom. It's giving up something very good for something better. For them, it is better not to marry because of their devotion to the kingdom. It's exactly the way Jesus puts it. They've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Three, these three unique circumstances that Jesus covers here basically cover all of life's reasons for being single, don't they? And in each of these, Jesus says, for some of these who hear this call, it is better to remain single. It's better not to marry. And, and, and you should know this. You know how in all of Matthew, we've been seeing Matt, uh, Jesus fulfilling prophecy? Matthew is, is everything that Matthew includes in Jesus' ministry is meant to show us Jesus is fulfilling the promises of the Messiah? Well, it's the same here. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 56, we won't read the whole thing, but in Isaiah chapter 56, Isaiah talks about the, the restoration of the kingdom, the coming kingdom. And first he says, and the, the outsider, the nations will be brought into this kingdom. And then he says, eunuchs will be included in this kingdom. Eunuchs will be included. Look at, look at verse 4 and 5 here. You skip up over to verses 4 and 5. Colin, I know I'm going off script here. Always dangerous. But... Uh, Verses 4 and 5. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, when that happens, everyone will know Messiah has come. And here's Messiah saying, eunuchs have a unique place. So what's Matthew doing? He's saying, Messiah has come. Prophecy is being fulfilled. But let's get more practical with this. The context of this is this promised restoration. The promised king comes. The people are made righteous by the king. The curse of sin is removed. And you can see the outsiders are brought in, foreigners are brought in, and eunuchs are being welcomed. Now, in the old way, in old Israel, if you didn't have kids, your name's cut off. Kids, kids were the blessing that kept your name going. And by that, we mean like your last name. In the new kingdom, 
what Isaiah is promising and what Jesus is fulfilling, you take on the name of King Jesus. And Jesus' name continues forever. So your name's not cut off because you remained single. It's not about you anymore. That's what Jesus is saying. And these, these eunuchs are given that name better than sons and daughters. The, the way this works all centers around what's happening as we've seen Jesus come in and bring in the new creation kingdom. We've talked about this a little bit. In the old creation, God's image was spread through, through how? Through, through procreation, right? You don't have to say it. God's image was spread through marriage and that command to be fruitful and multiply. So if you want to make image bearers of Adam who bears the image of God, well, you make baby Adams. And that's how those image bearers go throughout the world. That was the command. That was the creation ordinance. Well, in the new creation, in the kingdom of heaven that's come to earth, Jesus is the new image bearer. He's the new Adam. And so the means to spreading the image of God is through making disciples of King Jesus. When we are spiritually born again into Christ, we begin to bear his image. So the more disciples, the more image bearers, making baby Jesuses is the way, the new way in the new kingdom. And by that, I don't mean, you know, the Christmas time, the putting the baby Jesus and making disciples, guys. Making disciples. We're, we're bringing new image bearers of Christ into the world. That, that means... In the new kingdom, you don't have to be married to be fruitful and multiply. Do you? You don't have to be married to be fruitful and multiply image bearers of God. In fact, in some cases, it's better not to be married. And Isaiah was pointing to this from way back in history. And Jesus is fulfilling it. And then when we get to the Apostle Paul, he's living it out. He's an example of it. Paul was a single man who fathered lots and lots and lots of spiritual children through his proclamation of the gospel. At the beginning of Paul's letter to Titus, in verse 4, Titus 1-4, he says, To Titus, my true child. Paul's not his dad. He's not his earthly father. He's a spiritual father. Titus has been brought into the family through, through Paul. He's been brought into to God's family through Paul's preaching. Paul says the same thing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1-2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. And this isn't just how he communicates this special relationship to these young men. In writing to the Corinthian church, Paul tells that church, this is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So it's not just his personal relationship. He's bragging on these sons, spiritual sons of his, to entire churches in the same way that a father brags about his son. Paul's not Timothy's biological father. He's not Titus's earthly father, but Paul has claimed to these young men as his spiritual children because he discipled them into Christ. So for Paul, it's better to be single. In fact, singleness is a gift from the Lord for Paul, he says, because he's more effective for the kingdom than he would be as a married man. Look, flip over to 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to camp out there for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, the context of this chapter 
in this letter to this church is that the church is confused, really confused about marriage and sexuality. It's no surprise, right? They're in a culture much like ours that was really confused about sexuality. Homosexuality was normal. It was celebrated. Prostitution was an act of worship. Adultery was expected amongst married couples. And the church, looking out at the world around them, had come to see sex as a negative thing, as a bad thing. And so they concluded that if the culture at large was going to abuse this this gift from God, well, they're just going to stay away from it altogether. And so some married men and women in the church were abstaining from sex altogether, assuming that they were doing something righteous, something pious. But Paul teaches them the opposite. He says, if you are married, abstaining from sex is actually disobedient to God. It's sinful. And all the husbands said, amen. That's the context of of, of the instruction that we're about to see. I shouldn't have said that. Okay, but that's the context. You see the context. Move on. Just delete that. Jury, dismiss that. (laughs) Now, now, verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6. Now, as a concession, Paul says, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. What's Paul? He's single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So what's Paul saying? He says marriage is a gift. It's from God. Singleness is a gift. It's from God. It's good to be married. It's good to remain single. Both, and this is totally new. No one understood this yet. Both have their place in the kingdom of heaven. Both have their place in the kingdom of heaven that we live in right now as Christians on earth. Marriage, in that it is a gift, it has its advantages. And then those are clear advantages. But the gift of singleness, Paul wants to argue, also has advantages. And Paul goes on to describe these advantages beginning in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Verse 32, Paul says, I want you, speaking to the church, I want you to be free from anxieties. And by that he means the bad anxieties. That the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That's a good anxiety. It's a good anxiousness. Verse 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. What's he doing? He's promoting singleness. The the unmarried man or woman who is a Christian, look at verse 32, they are anxious about the things of the Lord. That's a good thing. That's an advantage that a single man or woman has over the married. Undivided devotion. They can be fully devoted to the king, as Jesus talked about in Matthew 19. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. And Paul's saying, this is good. It's a gift. Marriage has its advantages, and we've talked about those. 
But those advantages aren't as, as enormous as sometimes we make them out to be. Marriage, one of the advantages is that it brings a constant companionship. And you, you always, by God's grace, have a constant companion in your life. I'm thankful for my constant companion. But sometimes, and, and all of us, especially those in, in very good marriages, would recognize our companions can replace Christ. We're tempted to lean on our spouses in areas of our life where we should be relying on Christ. John Newton understood this. You guys know John Newton? He wrote Amazing Grace. He is known to have a very, very deep, very sweet relationship with his wife, Mary. Famously good marriage. One that we can aspire to. But in one letter he wrote to her, while he was away from her, he lamented that he longed for her more than he longed for Jesus. And that bothered him. He recognized that as good as his relationship with Mary was, his relationship to Christ was that much truer, that much better, that much more eternal. And so he desired, he really wanted to long for Christ more than he longed for his wife. The temptation for married folks to, to find ultimate satisfaction in their spouses is often very strong. It's a strong temptation. In fact, it's such a strong temptation that it can lead to fights and disagreements in the marriage. Singles don't have that issue. Singles, if, if they have the right perspective, have a jump start on eternity. If they're willing to seize hold of it, they're training right now for the eternal state. In eternity, we're all going to be single, and we'll see that in Matthew 22. And all of us will be totally devoted and satisfied in Christ. Singles right now are being uniquely sanctified toward that end, toward satisfaction in Christ, in a way that married folks aren't experiencing. Given what Isaiah said would be a reality in the heavenly kingdom come to earth, and given what Jesus has been teaching for us in Matthew 19, and given what we're seeing in, in Paul's message echoing Jesus, I think it's clear biblically, I think we can all understand this, we can agree to this, Singleness has a place in the church. And not just a place, but a place of honor. We should be, as Christians, honoring singleness right alongside marriage. How do we do that? We talked about how we honor marriage a couple weeks ago. And, and just know this, this doesn't replace that exhortation. Okay, we can do both. And the way that we or to, to honor marriages, remember that we celebrate marriages, we pray for marriages, we model our marriages after Christ's instruction. But how do we honor singleness? And by singleness, listen very carefully, I mean Christian singleness. All right? Whether for a season, some of you will be single for a season, some of you will be single for the rest of your lives. But we're talking here about a Christian who intends to use the gift of this season for kingdom use. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a, a missionary in Afghanistan. It, it could. But ordinary, ordinarily, it just means you're going to use this gift, this season that God's given you for God's glory. However that looks in your context. Okay? Now, I define Christian singleness 
that way because there is another type of singleness. If you're single because you don't like the idea of not having things your way, and you know marriage means not always having things your way, or you're single because you don't want to share your life with anybody except for your parakeet and your cat, or you're single because you're a jerk, or you're single because you destroy relationships, or if you're single because you prefer to have sex with lots of people rather than one who God has given you in marriage. That's not the type of singleness that Jesus is talking about, is it? That's sinfulness. And if any of those describes you, you need to repent. Don't expect to be honored by the church if you're living in disobedience to Christ. So there is a godly singleness that the church should be honoring. How does the church do that? And if you're seeking to use your season of singleness this gift that God's given you, you're seeking to use it for the glory of King Jesus, then the church has a duty given to us by Christ to walk alongside you and honor that calling. How do we do that as Christians? Well, first things first, we all as a church need to honor Christ. As a church, if it isn't clear to anybody who walks in, if it isn't clear to anyone who belongs to the congregation that Jesus our King is most highly exalted above everything else, then marriage won't be highly and rightly honored because it won't be a picture of the gospel. Singleness won't be honored as a picture of eternity in Christ. It just won't work if Christ isn't center. So if marriage is an idol in the church, this can be a temptation, especially amongst conservative evangelicals. If marriage becomes an idol, or if children become idols, or families become idols, Singles will see that, and they'll never feel welcome. They'll never be honored. When marriage is an idol, singles get brushed aside, and they feel it. Yes, we're glad you're here, but you need to stay over here with this group and do lots of activities with people like you so that maybe you can get married and be like us. But if Jesus Christ is the reason why the church exists, if he's the one where our lives are devoted to and our lives are oriented around, whether we're single or married or divorced or widowed, if in any of these cases, if anyone can look and say, this church is Christ-centered, then a single Christian will hear from others in the church, it is really good that you were devoted to Christ in the way that you are. And they'll know that they mean it. It won't feel like pandering. It won't feel like a pat on the back. If, if, if Christ is truly the center of our worship, singles, will, they'll know that they are applauded and honored for their devotion to Christ. So step one in honoring singles is honor Christ above all else. Worship Christ our King. In a Christ-centered church, everything else gets properly arranged. But once we're confident that Jesus Christ is our center, or at least that's what we're striving for. How do we honor and encourage singles? Well, we can ensure that singles aren't alone. That's how we honor them. One of the struggles with singleness is loneliness. To have the gift of singleness doesn't mean you're never lonely. Even Paul was occasionally lonely. 
Even though he had Jesus Christ, he lamented those times when his friends abandoned him. So if the one who said he can be content, if he said, Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, if he still faced loneliness, then you can be sure that the single people in our church struggle with loneliness. But listen, God has given all of us as a church family to one another to remedy this. Skip down to the end of Matthew 19. So we were in 1 Corinthians 7. Go back to Matthew 19. And we'll be here later on, uh, probably after Christmas. This is a different context, a different message that Jesus is giving. But there's a promise that he gives that applies here. The disciples are telling Jesus they've left everything behind to follow Jesus. And then just as what Jesus tells the disciples, look at verse 29, Matthew 19, 29. So what I want you to see. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is saying to the disciples, sacrificing a, a family life for kingdom life isn't really a sacrifice. Because Jesus says you receive 100-fold. It's not a sacrifice, it's a trade up. When you give up the dream of a family for service to the kingdom, you receive a family that is 100 times bigger. You receive the church. You receive the body of Christ, a new family. But that means for people who who make that exchange, to, to give up, the hope of a marriage, and exchange it for kingdom fruitfulness, we as a church have to live out what Jesus said. We have to fulfill what Jesus is promising by being who Jesus calls us to be. We actually have to be a church family. Not a collection of families, not a kind of sort of family on Sunday morning, but a family, a true family, one family. That single person really is your brother or your sister or your father or your mother. They are more closely related to you, really and truly in the kingdom, in Christ, than your non-Christian biological brother or sister. That's true. What does that mean practically? Well, Thursday's Thanksgiving. That brother or sister has no business eating this meal alone. They're your family. Honor them as you would your family. Invite them into your home. And let me press harder, okay? Because I had to press harder on myself this week when I was writing this. I'm going to write this. I have to stick to it. If you really believe that we are family in Christ, prove it. That's what faith is. Faith is acting on what you believe. As one preacher says, you can say that you believe a chair will hold you up. It's not faith until you sit in the chair and prove that you believe that it will hold you up. Do you believe that Christ has made all of us family? We've been baptized into one family in the Spirit, in Christ together. Well, that belief isn't faith until you begin to act on it. It's just lip service until you begin to live it out. 
If you say, well, this would be awkward because my real family's coming over to my house. I get it. But think of the way you just thought that, the way you just said it. My real family. Has Christ really accomplished anything? Really? Or is it just theory? Brothers and sisters, these people whom Christ has brought you together with are people that you will spend eternity with. Do you believe that or not? They are your real family. But it doesn't just go that way. Because all the singles are like, yeah, get them. Right? Your turn. Okay? It doesn't just go one way. Singles, the burden to truly be the family of God isn't just on married couples. It's on you too. Invite others to your home. Singles to your home. Marrieds to your home. Widows to your home. Widowers, young and old. They're all your family. Open up your apartment. Open up your house. I don't care how small it is. I don't care how messy it is. They're your family. Invite people to meals at your favorite taco shop if you're afraid of bringing them into your house. I think we sometimes mix this up and assume that only married couples are called to be hospitable, are called to, to treat others as the family of God. That is not true. That is falling into the trap of believing that only married couples are fully Christian. And that's not true. If you've been given the gift of singleness by God, then that's a gift that he's, been, that he's given to you to live out your true Christianness. So there are not commands only for the married couples and, and you get away with something. No, we're called, all of us are called to be family to one another, married or single. So singles, I'm just going to say this bluntly, don't feel sorry for yourself, okay? Don't feel sorry for yourself. You've been given a gift. It's not a burden. It's a gift. It's a good gift from your Savior. So trust your Savior that what he's given you is truly a good gift and use it to serve others for God's glory. Well, how else do we honor singles in the church? Well, we pray for them. And I don't say that lightly. In the same way that we pray for our married couples, because they have unique challenges and temptations in marriage, and they need the Spirit's guidance, singles have unique challenges as well. Pray for them. Remember the struggles. If you're married, remember the struggles that you had when you were single. Pray for them according to those. And don't just pray that they'd find a spouse. Pray that they wouldn't make an idol out of finding a spouse. More than that, pray that they would be content in Christ. Pray that they'd be satisfied in him. Pray that they'd be able to overcome sexual temptation. Pray that they'd be able to overcome the temptation to squander their time. Pray for our younger singles. Pray that God would give them direction. That he would give them counsel through older women and men in the church. For our older singles, pray that God would give them joy. That he would keep them from fearfulness and anxiety. Jesus said, for some, it is better to be single. He did not say that it would be easier. So pray for your single brothers and sisters. Now, there is a lot more we could say. I could just, I, if I've, this is the first sermon I've ever preached on singleness. And so there, there's a lot that I could say 
And one sermon in three years is not adequate, and I apologize for that. But friends, God's word is adequate. All right, so I want to leave you with this. Whether you're single, you're married, divorced, or widowed, whatever season of life that you're in, trusting in what God's word is communicating to us is absolutely essential. Trust the Lord's provision for you because it is sufficient for you. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you have heard that regardless of the season of life that you are in, it is only Christ who will ultimately satisfy you. I hope that you've heard that. For some, it is better to be single in order to be satisfied in Christ. For some, it is better to be married to be satisfied in Christ. But for everyone, it is better to be satisfied in Christ because only Jesus Christ truly satisfies, regardless of where you are. Jesus Christ is the only one who satisfies the longings of our souls, whatever longing you're feeling, non-Christian. He is the one who we are truly home with, and we are wanderers until we are with him. So come home to Christ. Amen. Let's pray.